Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. You have a Bible you can open up to Luke chapter 10. And we're really going to kind of talk about two things this morning, but they dovetail together in the idea. One would be ministering from overflow, um, but also the, that's, that's the positive way to look at it. The negative way to look at it would be idols that we face when we're in ministry. So uh, this passage doesn't specifically use the word idols, but I think you certainly have the idea and the principle that shows up in this passage. So let's just think for a minute about the idea, the concept biblically of idolatry. Obviously, we don't bow down to wooden or stone statues and pray that they would save us. But an idol would be something that gives us ultimate significance in life. Uh, There are a lot of good things in life that we desire, but when it turns into a demand, I have to have this, that's when it, in a sense, has become an idol. Um, If there's something in life that you basically say, I can't really enjoy life without this thing, it's an idol. I just heard this from somebody else, and I thought this was a great way to define it. If there's anything in your life that you tend to have more positive emotions about or negative emotions about when you don't get it than God, it's an idol because the majority of your emotional intensity in life ought to go to the Lord. Now, uh, especially those of you that are in college or you've been in college uh, or, or remember back to high school, what would be the typical idols of the high school, junior high students you're ministering to, your college students that you were buddies with, maybe even you when you were college. What would be kind of the typical idols off the top of your tongue that first come to mind? Relationships. Okay, relationships. Okay, great. Anything else? Sports. Sports. Great. Anything else? Popularity. Popularity. Great. Okay. Now, um, those are all true. And, um, and then there can be a lot worse ones, Right. Uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, just the whole party lifestyle. And usually the more extreme the idol is and the more negative of a thing is, right? Like if you have a heroin addiction, it's probably going to show up pretty quick. You're probably not going to keep that one undercover for very long. For people that are in full-time ministry, what do you think their idols tend to be? The ministry. The ministry. And this can come out in multiple ways. It might mean that I just really, if I'm, if I'm honest about it, I love and enjoy doing ministry more than I really love the Lord. I mean, where do you sense and experience more emotional joy, motivation, satisfaction? Is it being with people ministering to them or is it being alone with the Lord? For some of us, it's not necessarily doing the ministry. It's just having a great name about our ministry. The reputation for being known as a great, effective ministry can really become more important to us than actually doing a good job, much less actually loving the Lord, knowing the Lord, serving the Lord. You see the problem there? No. So let's just say, hypothetically, that um, next year you're coming back to be an intern, and there's another intern you know, next year that's in the room. Uh, that year they're not here now. And they really have this ministry idol. They love ministry more than they love Jesus. And in fact, they love having a reputation for being a great minister. Practically speaking, when you first met that person and they first showed up for the job, what do you think, how would that manifest itself in their life? What would it look like in their life? 
take a guess for fun. Well, what would that type of person look like? What would they be doing with their time and energy? Be all ministry, all the time. They'd be all in, all ministry, all the time. And at first glance, what do you think you might say about them as the full-time staff or the second-year intern? Here comes this new person. They're all in. They're all ministry all the time. What might be your first gut, visceral response to that person? It's awesome. Keep it up. Keep doing it. You see the problem? When you're, listen, the, the more your idol is a good thing that you've turned into a God thing, so to speak, the harder it is to discover it. The harder it is to even know you're doing it. And therefore, in some sense, the more danger it is. Right? I mean, in one sense, you could say, uh, idolizing ministry sounds a lot better than idolizing a heroin addiction. And I would agree with you, right? If you've got to choose, this one's probably a lot safer. But here's, here's the flip side of that. The danger is, if you're idolizing heroin, you probably know you have a problem. Right? It's like, this is killing me. I've got to stop. I've got to go to rehab. If you're idolizing ministry, highly likely you don't even know have the problem until maybe it's too late. And you burn out and crash and burn. So let's, let's dive in. We're going to look at this passage. It's a short, famous story. To kind of, and what we're trying to do initially here is at least diagnose our own hearts. Where are idols? And so I would just ask you, I'm not going to ask, you know, this has been group participation up at this point. This is where it ceases. I just want you to think in your own mind, what are my idols? And if you're like, no, 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 I'm so in love with Jesus right now. I really am. Okay, great. But if you really know your own heart, there's always some kind of second place competitor trying to knock Christ off the throne, right? What is it for you? And if you're like, I really don't know, appreciate your honesty, but that's not a good sign. It's not a sign of your maturity. I just must be so mature, I don't know what it is. No, no, you're so immature, you don't know yourself. So, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now, Martha is the example of somebody that, in a sense, has a ministry idol. And, and really, what it, she, there's something she values more than the Lord Jesus himself. Now, let's just take this at surface level first. Jesus is traveling with almost certainly the 12 disciples, maybe even a, a larger uh, entourage, we're not sure, comes to town. Mary and Martha, they have this home. Martha's almost certainly the older sister, and so she's the more responsible and dutiful one. She's hosting Jesus. I mean, this is a gift of hospitality. She invites them in. She's cooking for them. She's feeding them. Most of the time, they were poor. They didn't have any money. They needed people to provide for them. This is a good thing. She's using her gift to serve Jesus. It's like she ought to get praise and accolades for that, but she doesn't. She gets a rebuke instead. Now, why? John Calvin says, Martha carried her activity beyond the proper bounds. There's one object to which everything ought to be referred. Direct all of our actions to one fixed purpose. Pay proper attention to order, lest what is accessory becomes our chief concern. Now, that's just kind of a long way to say, when secondary things become more important to you than primary things, you're in trouble. And Martha obviously was. 
right? Because she was distracted with serving Jesus rather than listening to Jesus, loving Jesus. William Hendrickson um, says, Distract, she's distracted, she's agitated, she's literally, the word here means to be drawn or pulled in every direction, going to pieces over all things she imagined she had to do. John MacArthur, she's being drugged all around, so to speak. It, listen, the modern day vernacular would be she's running around like a chicken with her head cut off. She, she's trying to make a Thanksgiving feast, and she's trying to find her significance in, look at my Thanksgiving feast I made for Jesus. When the proper thing to do is like if Jesus comes to your house and decides to sit down and have some personal, intimate teaching and communion time with a small group, fix him a PBJ or whatever the Jewish equivalent of that was 2,000 years ago so that you can prioritize time alone with him. But she missed it. So, but how can we know? How can we know if we have an idol of ministry or anything else? I think three ways. First, she was distracted from her priorities, right? Anything, anytime somebody... Be- let secondary things become more primary than the primary things, there's an idol there. Now, what's that in your life? Do you say, you know, this summer's been great, but actually my time alone with the Lord hasn't been great. Well, why hasn't it been great? Well, I'm trying to do it first thing in the morning, but I'm oversleeping. Why are you oversleeping? Well, I get home after a night at the barn with all the students, and it's so high energy, it's hard to go to sleep, so I kind of start flipping channels, and I'm just binging on Netflix, and I end up staying up, and watching two hours of TV, and so then I'm exalting. Okay, maybe you're exalting entertainment over the Lord. Tonight, you're distracted. Okay? Um, and you may say, well, sometimes it's not clear what should be a priority, but here's what is clear. Let's just focus on the things that are clear. Your personal walk with the Lord ought to trump virtually all other things. Could there be exceptions, right? If you're in your house... Let's say you're living with your roommates and you wake up earlier than everybody else one morning because you're so super spiritual and you're on your knees reading your Bible and praying and then you smell smoke. You lit some candles to have ambiance in your quiet time and you knock one over and you set the house on fire and you're like, well, I don't want to be distracted. I'm just going to keep praying. I love you, but you're a moron, right? In that moment, go wake your roommates up, save their lives, get out of the house. But in general... Nothing should come between you and your personal time alone with the Lord. Do you find yourself not going to Sunday morning worship? Now, you probably don't do this when you're the BYG intern for the summer. But what about when you're back at college? Ah, I'll oversleep. Ah, I got a big test to study for. Ah, none of my friends are going this week. I can just watch it online. That's what we did during COVID. That counts, doesn't it? And you're just pushing it into a secondary position. That's a problem when you're distracted. Okay? And a lot of times what it can be for people in full-time ministry is I'm so concerned to build a big and broad outward ministry that I minimize building a deep and personal ministry with students. There's hungry students that want to learn. They want to go deeper. Like, oh, I can't. i got to go meet somebody else all the time, running and gunning. No, is there a balance between breadth and depth? Yes, But what I've seen a lot of people do at times is sacrifice the depth for the breadth. Well, you can do the other thing too. You can sacrifice breadth. Usually what I have seen is people sacrifice breadth in the name of depth, but really what's driving them is they're a painful introvert and they don't want to go have awkward conversations. So like there's this one nerd that always wants to ask me deep theological questions 
And I can just hang out in the corner with the nerd for two hours a night and talk about deep theological questions that really will actually never have any application in his whole life. But I, then I don't have to go talk to any of the non-Christian students that came because that would be too intimidating. You see the problem? That's not really loving. That's just selfish. You, you're just protecting your own sense of awkwardness. Again, I don't know what it is for you. I'm just saying, are your priorities out of whack? Are you distracted from your priorities? The second thing, when you have an idol, it will almost always show up in a demanding spirit. Did you notice Martha when she talks to Jesus? Now, this was a version of prayer. It's different from what our prayer looks like because when we talk to Jesus, there's not literally a Jewish carpenter sitting in our house with a robe and beard and sandals. But she goes up to Jesus. Did you know what she said? My sister's not helping me, Lord. Tell her to help me. Now, listen, I am all for bold, aggressive, desperate prayer. That's good. But demanding prayer is bad. Demanding prayer is essentially saying, hey God, you might be doing a good job running the rest of the universe everywhere else, but in my little corner of the universe right now, you're doing a bad job and I want you to change it. I have more wisdom than you. Because you're valuing something at a level more than God is. So you're, again, your priorities are out of whack. Um, it's so easy to fall into the comparison game especially on a summer like you guys are in with a lot of different interns. And you kind of start to know, well, what time did he show up this morning? Well, what time did she get done last night? Well, how many one-on-ones did they have? You understand? And it kind of, well, I want this to be fair. I feel like I'm working hard. And I'm working harder than them. But they're getting more credit. Who cares? Live for an audience of one. Are you living for the accolades of men and women? Or are you really just saying, I want to please the Lord Jesus Christ? And I was talking to a friend yesterday, and he's gotten sideways with another person at his church. And he's like, I feel like I'm being falsely accused. And I just said, are you clear in your conscience that you haven't sinned against this guy? He said, yes, it's best to know I don't think I've sinned against this guy. I said, then what are you worried about? He said, well, I feel like this guy's going to drag my name through the mud. Maybe. Maybe he will. And it's not wrong to want a good name. That's a good desire, right? I mean, Proverbs talks about that. But if a desire for a good name becomes a demand for a good name, now you have an idol. And here's the really bad thing. You can't control it anyway. It's just a futile pursuit. But if you just say, no, no, I'm going to try to live for the praise and the honor and the pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. It will be better than fair. So live for him, rest there. Okay. The third thing, when you have an idol, it will always lead to you being down. I mean, Martha was sad. She was bothered. She was worried. Tim Keller famously said, your idol won't love you back. When you go to an idol, and guys, haven't you experienced this? Just think for a second about whatever the biggest idol has been in your life. Again, I'm not going to ask you to share publicly so you can be really honest with yourself. And in a sense, when you get your idol, how long does it really satisfy you for? Three seconds? It's like a mist that vanishes as soon as you touch it. Right? For the wild and crazy college students, like, I want to go to the party. I want to get hammered drunk. I want to be the life of the party. Maybe they have a great night. 
But within 30 minutes after they get home and it's over, it's not enough. It doesn't satisfy the deepest desires of their soul and it probably leaves them more bitter, more sad, more depressed, more worried, more driven to even go harder the next time until they're blacked out, right? And it's the same thing. I mean, have you ever gotten some great accolade in ministry? That was the best Bible study we've ever had led by an intern. You're like, it's amazing. It's exactly what I wanted. And then by the time you get your 10-minute drive home, you're like, nothing's changed. I'm just the same person with the same struggles and the same needs. It's good to enjoy a compliment. Don't try to put all the delight of your soul in the praise and accolades of men. It won't do it. Okay? Nothing can truly give you lasting, meaningful safety, security, significance, satisfaction. Only Christ can. Now, if Martha's the bad example, Mary's the right example. Okay? Number one, she's not distracted, she's devoted. I kind of tend to think, and, and I, I don't know for sure, that like, they see Jesus in the crowd coming, hey, come in, and maybe she ran in the kitchen, and she kind of did the bare minimum, you know? Again, got the chicken salad out of the fridge or whatever it would have been 2,000 years ago in Palestine and said, here you go. But then when Jesus started teaching, she went and sat at his feet because her priorities were right. She was devoted to him. She was focused. And again, so again, when we start talking about priorities, it's easy to say, yeah, but there's some things that aren't as clear. I mean, what about like my studies and how the ministry and my fraternity and how should I? Like, just start with the ones that are clear. Christ above everything else. And you get the first priorities in line. It's amazing how the secondary ones start to line up. The second thing, Mary is free of the comparison game. She doesn't care about the comparison game. Now, how do I know? Because the picture here is of a house, and even big houses back then for Jewish families under Roman occupation would most of the time been pretty small. But just even imagine your house. If you're like, my parents live in a mansion. Just imagine it's Jesus and the 12 disciples and a couple of women, and they're all in the den. It, it seems that Mary is sitting as close to Jesus as she can. Maybe at his feet, but at least as close as y'all are to me right now. And then Martha comes in. Jesus, I'm doing all the work. My sister's a lazy bones. Please tell her to get in the kitchen and help me. Mary had to have heard what was said. And what did Mary say in her own defense? Absolutely nothing. Because when you're right with Jesus, who cares? When my children were younger, I won't say any of their names because some of you know them. But sometimes when they'd really get on my nerves on a Saturday afternoon or something, I'd just be like, everybody go outside and clean the yard for an hour. Just pick up sticks, trash, pine cones, I don't care. Go to the bathroom and get a drink of water before you go out because I love you all, but I don't want to see you all for an hour. And that would usually give me about seven minutes apiece because after seven minutes, you know, one of them would come in and like, Dad, I've been working hard. I've been throwing the pine cones in the trash can, but he wasn't doing anything. He's like throwing pine cones at, you know, somebody else. And, you know, when one came in to complain, you know what I could guarantee was going to happen within the next 30 seconds? The other one was coming in to defend himself. No, Dad, I was actually working. He knocked the trash can over. What? And, guys, that, that's a picture of our little competitive hearts, oftentimes in ministry. I was just up here finishing up a phone call, talking to a friend, different church, different ministry, different state, about a staff guy they're having a hard time with, and, and, and 
he actually had called me a couple weeks ago and said, can you talk to this guy and help him? And I had talked to him and helped him, I think. Uh, but I've been out of pocket for a couple weeks. I didn't know, so I called him. I said, man, catch me up. I don't know what's going on. And he started to say, man, I think this staff guy's really had a turnaround. And actually, here's some of the stuff he was saying. As he's saying it, I'm realizing, that's what I told that guy. Like, I helped him. He's quoting me. And like, I'm on the phone, and everything in me wanted to say, I told him that. Just, I want some credit. And it was a battle for me on the phone call to say, what's the point? Why? 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 I ought to just be rejoicing. The guy repented. Why do I have to go the extra mile in my heart and say, I want credit for that repentance? Because ultimately it's not me, right? It's the Holy Spirit. But guys, it's so easy to get sucked into that comparison game. And the main way to be free is when you're really walking closely with Jesus. And there's a sense of his smile and his pleasure on your life. It's easy to say, who cares about this person? Charlie, let me use you an example. Goalie, right? Play goalie? Going to Covenant, you're going to play goalie. Let's say you get up there, you're a freshman, you're starting, y'all having this great season. And uh, let's say there's this other freshman on the team, and he's just like the worst. You can't imagine why he made the team. He's a disaster. Mentally, physically, it's like he must have a powerful dad giving a lot of money to the school. That's the only reason he's on the team. And you are having the greatest season of your life. Y'all are into the playoffs. You're doing amazing. But then one goal gets scored on you, and you really take it to heart. You really feel bad. And during halftime, you come and you're shaking your head. It's like my fault. And the head coach comes over to you and says, hey, Charlie, that wasn't your fault. That was the defense's fault. They blew it. You did your best. Forget about it. We're going to be fine. And then the head coach walks away, and this loser guy on the team that nobody likes, nobody respects, he comes over to you and you're like, you're a moron, Charlie. I would have blocked that ball. What's wrong with you? You're terrible. How ought you to respond? How should you, and anybody can answer. Charlie's just the example because I know his sport, all right? How should Charlie respond to the loser guy on the team when the loser guy on the team starts giving him all that negative feedback? What's that? Shut up. Yeah, shut up. Now, here's how I'm going to shift the analogy just a little bit. In the game of life, the Lord Jesus Christ is the head coach. And if he's saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant, not perfect, but well done. You're being faithful. You're being sincere. You're being genuine. But your own heart is giving you a bunch of negative self-talk. You're the moron on the team. I'm the moron on the team. My own opinion of myself shouldn't even count. Does that make sense? But most of us care way too much about what we think about ourselves. Have you ever heard people say this kind of stuff? It sounds really spiritual. Well, maybe you can forgive me. Maybe the Lord can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. You ever heard people say stuff like that? That's really just arrogance and self-righteousness. Well, maybe Jay thinks I'm doing a good job this summer. But I'm not living up to my own personal standards. Be careful. Wrestle to make sure in your conscience you're clear with the Lord Jesus that you're being faithful. And then let the comparison game go. And it's a lot easier said than done. Okay. I mean, just imagine what it would be like. What would it be like to live a whole seven-day week and never have one thought about what other people think about you? The good, the bad, or the ugly? 
just to be totally free. It's like the thoughts don't even cross your mind because you're just so consumed with what Christ thinks about you. It'd be a glorious way to live, wouldn't it? By grace, work to get there. And then the third thing we see in Mary's life, she's delighting. She's, cho- I mean, I, part of why I love this passage so much is I love things that are simple, that are clear, and the beginning of verse 42, but one thing is necessary. I mean, this is the Lord Jesus Christ saying, there's really only one thing in life that's necessary. Everything else is secondary compared to your communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sitting at His feet. Your listening. Your meditation. Your worship of Him. And whatever your idol is, even the best idols like ministry success, will never satisfy the depths of your soul. You know, I think you can make a good case that the three greatest leaders of revival in the Bible, or at least three of them, would be Elijah. You remember the revival he had where the fire falls from heaven and they slaughter, you know, the 450 prophets of Baal and the whole nation of Israel. like, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. John the Baptist, I mean, uh, yeah, let's do John the Baptist. John the Baptist, before Jesus came, it said all of the countryside was going to John the Baptist, repenting. Even the Pharisees were going to check it out. And then good old Jonah. Remember, he goes to Nineveh. He didn't want to go. He hated him. I mean, they were like the Nazis of the Old Testament. But he starts preaching, and it says the whole city repents. Even the king repents. The king, like, made the donkeys go on a fast. But you know what happened to all three of those men at some point? After their revival, there was a type of depression. You remember Elijah? One enough. I'd rather just die. Jonah? He was mad about the revival. Why don't you just kill me, God? John the Baptist went to prison and then started to doubt. Jesus, are you really the one you said you were? Because this isn't the way I thought it was supposed to go. Here's my point, guys. You could be the next great revival leader. The next Billy Graham. The next George Whitfield. It will not satisfy the depths of your soul. And if you're not satisfied in Christ and Christ alone, Ministry won't do it. But you'll try to find your satisfaction there, which in some perverse way just means you're just using the students you're ministering to to meet your own needs rather than just out of the overflow of the favor of God in your life turning and giving that favor to them. So let's get practical. Remember, in the, when the Bible's first written, no chapter, no verse divisions, so just keep going. And we really have two passages kind of on communion with God that probably didn't happen back to back but Luke writes this part of his gospel more chronologically not not chronologically but more uh, in a systematic way and so look at the story he's going to give us right after this now Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished one of his disciples said to him Lord teach us to pray as John taught his disciples and he said to them when you pray say so if the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity in his sinlessness had a strong fervent devotional time, prayer time, how much more do you and I need it? If it was his regular habit, Luke chapter 5 verse 16, to rise early and to withdraw to a lonely place and commune with the Father, how much more do you and I need it? Now, let's say I was late coming back from the beach and Reed's like, Olin's not going to make it, but you know what guys, I just heard uh, LeBron James happens to be in town. So, guess, I don't know why, but LeBron James is hanging out at the barn this morning and so we have him in as a guest speaker. 
He didn't have a talk prepared, but you can ask him questions about anything. What would you want to ask? If you were going to ask LeBron James, teach me how to blank, what are you going to ask LeBron James about? This is not a trick question. What's that? How to play basketball. Right. And if Pele rose from the dead and came back, and he did, didn't he die recently, I think, you know, you're going to ask him how to play soccer, and I could go on and on and on. The point is, you ask people about what they seem to be an expert in. Don't ask me about basketball or soccer. The only place where the disciples specifically said to Jesus in all four Gospels, teach us how to blank, they said, teach us how to pray. They didn't say, teach us how to preach. They didn't say, teach us how to cast out demons, teach us how to heal, teach us how to lead, teach us how to counsel, teach us how to disciple, teach us how to evangelize, as important as all those things are. The only recorded place, they said, teach us how to pray. And some of these guys, if you remember, several of them, maybe up to half of them, had been disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus. And John the Baptist was no bone. I mean, he was a radical dude. Right, living out in the countryside, looking like Elijah, eating locust and honey. Jesus said he was the greatest guy of all the Old Testament saints. It's pretty high praise. And yet they're like, hey, gee, Jesus, John the Baptist had a pretty devout prayer life, but there's something different and better about yours. So practically, how do you have the right priorities? So much of it is in your personal prayer time. So let me just give you a super brief piece of my personal story. Some of y'all heard this before, and we'll wrap it up very quickly. Uh, I really started walking with Christ when I was a teenager in high school. Went to First Baptist Church, small town where I grew up. Dad was a small business owner, but I remember having a conversation with my dad as a high schooler saying, Dad, something about your life seems different than the average First Baptist church member who seems like a nice person who gives a little bit of money and is moral, but for you, you really seem like your whole life is centered around Christ and the way you make decisions, the way you pray, the way you use your free time, the way you use your money. What's the difference? And he said, I was watching a preacher on TV, a guy named Charles Stanley, Andy Stanley's father, you know, not a weird preacher. Um, and 10 years ago, he said, he said, if you will give God 30 minutes alone in prayer every day, God will radically change every aspect of your life. And I said, I'm going to try to do that. It didn't really work. Probably for the first month or two, it was more like every other day. It was more like 20 minutes. It was more like I daydreamed for 10 minutes and slept the other 10 minutes. But I do have memories of coming home after school, getting on my knees, opening my Bible and saying, Lord, teach me to pray. And at some point, it's like 30 minutes would fly by. You know, at first, it's like I couldn't think of anything to pray for five minutes, right? Like, God bless me, my family, the missionaries, help me not fail my test, help us win the football game. What else is there to pray about? There's no verse that says you have to pray 30 minutes a day. I do think practically, if you'll say, I am going to devote every single day at least 30 minutes alone with the Lord, come hell or high water, it is a very good practical step to centering your life around Christ, making Him your greatest priority, and letting your ministry come out of the overflow of your personal intimacy with Him. Why do I say 30 minutes? Because it was a part of my life and because almost all of us have other good things in our life, whether that be going to the gym, watching Netflix, or just fixing our hair every morning that we'll happily give 30 minutes to. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. But if you can give 30 minutes a day every day to those things, you ought to be able to give 30 minutes a day every day to God alone in prayer. Especially if you're in full-time ministry. So, you're like, I don't want to be in full-time ministry. I'll, okay, just do it for this summer then. Give it a try. See what happens.
me give one quote here. Robert Murray McShane. And before I read this, let me just say, I think this quote is too much. I think he goes too far. I don't fully agree with this quote. So hear the quote and then just receive it at about 98%. But I think there's a lot of truth here. Old Scottish preacher. I ought to pray before seeing anyone. Often when I sleep long or meet with others early and then have family prayer and breakfast and forenoon callers, often it is 11 or 12 o'clock before I begin secret prayer. This is a wretched system. It is unscriptural. Christ rose before day and went into a solitary place. David says, early will I seek thee. Thou shalt early hear my voice. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was yet dark. Family prayer loses much of its power and sweetness, and I can do no good to those who come to seek from me. The conscience feels guilty, the soul unfed, the lamp not trimmed. Then when secret prayer comes, the soul is often out of tune. I feel it is far better to begin with God, to see his face first, to get my soul near him before it is near another when I wake, I am still with thee. Prioritize your personal time alone with the Lord. Prioritize your prayer life above all else. And then very quickly, the Lord's Prayer that we know. Father, hallowed be your name. Okay? Prioritize worship in your personal prayer life. Before you get to all your requests, and again, that doesn't mean if you're having a desperate day and something's heavy on your heart, you can't just say, God, please help me with this situation. Of course you can. This is not to be formulaic. But in general, you ought to start your prayers with, I love you, I worship you, I want to honor you, I want the desires of your heart before I even get to the desires of my heart. Prioritize grace and relationship. Look at verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So much of the Lord's prayer is about our relationship with the Lord, about our relationship with others, about repenting of our sins about praying against the future sins that are coming. Guys, this is a side note, but it's so important. It ought to be a part of your daily time alone with the Lord to say, Lord, I know that temptations will come today. I don't know exactly what they'll be. But a lot of times we do know what they'll be because it's the exact same temptations that came yesterday and the day before that and the day, right? Please prepare me. Please let me be ready. Please let me stand firm. Please give me something from the Word today to fight. Guys, I hope that your prayer life is much more relational than it is organizational and duty-bound. You understand what I mean by that? And just, just, again, be honest with yourself. When you do have personal time alone with the Lord, do you tend to see it more as you as a soldier reporting to duty to the general? That's not a bad way to see your prayer life because there's some truth there. He is a general and we are a soldier. But I would say that's not the best way to view your prayer life. The best way is he's a good father. And I'm a son, an adopted child. That ought to be the primary motif that we see our relationship with the Lord. Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. We're all familiar with that passage, right? His mercies are new every morning. Why are his mercies new every morning? Because my sin is new every morning. And so every morning in a fresh way, I need to be going before him, not just in a generic way. I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I'm totally depraved. God's gracious. Guys, if you keep it at a surface theological level like that, it's close to worthless. It's so much better to say, Lord, here's how I sinned last night. Here's how I sinned this morning. Here's how I'm tempted to sin today. Here's how I'm tempted and I'm honestly kind of planning to sin tomorrow. Please forgive me. 
please change me. Please let the power of the cross be a present reality in my life. Let me have a fresh application of the blood of Jesus in my life to cleanse me so that I feel like I've been cleansed from all unrighteousness. And then don't just give me forgiveness. Yes, I I want it. I need it. I have to have it. But then give me the grace to fight and not to do it again. And if that becomes kind of the normal warp and woof of your life, guys, I'm not saying you're going to be sinless. You won't. But you'll make progress. And I'm not saying you're going to have a perfect ministry. But there will be more power in your ministry. That when you talk about the power of the cross, it won't just be an academic reality. It'll be a personal, experiential reality. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make us into the men and the women of prayer and ministry and right priorities that you want us to be by your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.